Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk biosecurity with Dr. Daryl Holkamp. How are you doing today, Daryl? Good. Glad to be here, Matthew. I'm excited to have you on here to talk about biosecurity. I love some of these topics because often they're things that we want everyone to be hearing, but it seems that we have to say it a thousand times before it sinks in sometimes. Uh, would love just to have you start off by introducing yourself and your background and what brought you to Iowa and what brought you to pigs? Sure. Yeah, I'm a professor in the Department of Veterinary Diagnostic and Production Animal Medicine at Iowa State University, and I've been there since 2006. And uh, I, I guess what brought me to Iowa, I uh, I would say uh, that would have to be uh, by birth. I, I was born in Iowa and <laughs> uh, raised in Iowa. I spent uh, probably more years living uh, in or working in Ames than anywhere else. Uh, but we moved around uh, quite a bit right out, out of bed school, lived in Houston, North Carolina, Twin Cities. And so got to experience some industries in different parts of the of the country there. But uh, I um, took an unusual route to vet school. I, I started out um, uh, not uh, planning to do that and ended up getting a, a degree in ag business and then a master's in ag economics. And then went back a little bit later and, and uh, then completed my, my DVM degree and uh, finished that up in 97. I'm going to ask an unusual question that I don't typically ask, but what is your uh, your favorite production story? From the time you got into this industry, does anything stand out as memorable, as monumental when you think about your career? Well, that, yeah, lots lots of things. I, yeah, you put me on the spot. Yeah. There's one, I, I think one story that uh, that happened to me in my first year out of vet school that uh, that has always kind of stuck with me, and uh, it has to do with with dealing with people more than pigs or or, uh, or medicine. But uh, it was a situation where uh, uh, was was told a few days before Christmas to go and uh, and fire a farm manager that had uh, had had been having some issues, and and I, I just felt so bad about that, uh, you know, going to have to do that, and uh, it wasn't probably until a couple months after where we started uh, talking to the employees at that farm and they started to open up a little bit and we started to learn some of the things he was doing. And so it was, it was, um, you know, he was dumping, telling the employees to ignore everything we told them and dump vaccine in the pits and all kinds of stuff. And, oh, wow. and I, I sort of gained an appreciation both for, uh, uh, for the person that, that told us to do that. And, uh, you know, he, he saw something that, that we didn't obviously. And, and uh, it, it was a big and important lesson for me in in uh, dealing with how important it is to to be able to deal with people, right? And 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 establish trust and build those relationships. And that was a case where you know we obviously didn't have that relationship with this person. There certainly was no trust there, as we found out later. Where it's a, 
a lighter. And so that, that has always stuck with me. I think Matthew, probably that's the one story that, uh, I, I, my, I've told that story so many times. I forget who, who I've told it to now, but I know you've never heard that before. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. And it, it is incredible how much trust and faith and belief and all of that plays into the dynamics of creating strong teams. So when you look at your career, you've really highlighted biosecurity, especially as of late. Why? Yeah, I think uh, I, I wouldn't even say as of late, Matthew. I think when I um, uh, even when I graduated in 97, it, you know, it was becoming very apparent to me that that, um, that biosecurity probably what at that time wasn't really a big focus in the industry. But uh, but I could see that that it was going to need to become a bigger, bigger focus. And so. I didn't really, I wouldn't say I had a, an opportunity to really act on that until I, I, uh, you know, got to Iowa State in 2006. But, but it became apparent to me that, you know, we had sort of built, uh, built an industry that, you know, was relatively, uh, well, not relatively, but was drastically different than what we had, had, uh, become a used, become used to, uh, you know, up until, let's say the 1980s. And we created an industry that, that, you know, uh, what is what I would describe as a very open production system. And so by that, I mean, you know, we have lots of things coming in and out. And if you look around that, you know, sort of other biological production industries like food production or ethanol now, um, you know, biopharma even, uh, they don't do that. They build relatively closed production systems so that, you know, once you get a batch of inputs together, they, they tend to try to minimize what goes in and out after that. And so, you know, it became pretty clear to me that that biosecurity was wasn't going to go away right and 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 then of course pers was emerging and um you know that that sort of changed everybody's mindset as well and so i kind of felt like i i was pretty comfortable or pretty um pretty safe in picking that as as a topic to focus on <laughs> in my research and and i think time has has kind of proven that that right so you reference pers so here's a question for you i think a lot of times when we talk about PERS resistant pigs or other solutions to diseases. It's like, oh yeah, if only we solve PERS, then we wouldn't have to worry as much about biosecurity. Is that is that kind of a, a bad way to think? Is PERS what brought it to our attention as opposed to what made it relevant? Yeah, that's that's a good question, Matthew. I, I mean, the, the the simple answer is that even if we got rid of PERS, right, we we would not all of a sudden be able to just ignore biosecurity. We Yep. We've got African swine fever virus knocking on the door now and, and all the other foreign animal diseases. Yep. Uh, ED virus is still out there. Uh, looks like maybe TGE virus has gone away, but um, but it probably not. It's probably still out there. So there's still lots of reasons. My, you know, there's there's uh, companies now or, or uh, uh, veterinarians that are leading the charge on eliminating mycoplasma how pneumonia from herds, right, to sow herds. And once you do that, you want to keep it out. So, no, I don't, I don't foresee... Uh, you know, the importance of biosecurity going away anytime, certainly not in my, my uh, career. So before we start to get into some of the studies that you've done, and, and I think what we need to be doing as an industry or what, what's been going on, could you give us a little context of the past since you have been really focused on biosecurity? How has the conversation around biosecurity evolved? Is, is it more so a topic of conversation around day-to-day employees than what it used to be? It's, how, much, how far have we come? over the past 15 years? Yeah. So that, that's a really good question. One that I actually um, like to ask when I, when I give presentations on this topic and, and, you know, I simply ask, you know, are we making progress? Right. And 
the the typical answer I get uh, from from veterinarians is is um, uh, you know a, kind of a litany of, of things, especially in in sow herds that we've done for control measures. Right, we've added benches, we've added showers, we're building trailer washes, and uh, you name it. You know, lots of things, and 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 then all none, all that is true. Um, but what I what I typically don't hear uh, is the other side of the equation, which is that the hazards, the biosecurity hazards, right? And and those lie in how we do things, right? How we do the production processes, like how we produce and package and deliver and and then use semen, right? And and same with feed and same with employees. All those things, the the who does them, when they do them, what they do them with, how they do them, all that detail, the who, what, when, where, and how of those production activities is where those hazards lie, right? And and I think we've done a poor job, and I'll, I'll lay this at the at the feet of, of veterinarians especially, we've done a poor job of sort of recognizing and then communicating uh, when we create those hazards. And that is, uh, that is uh, become, uh, or that has started to go at hyper speed here um, during the pandemic or after the pandemic here because of the labor market issue, right? And so, it becomes more and more difficult to get labor. We're, we're sometimes short of labor. We start to reach for uh, third-party contracted uh, services or, or, you know, contracting, getting labor through third-party contracted uh, arrangements. And, and we start to, we, you know, that we, we, we start to create uh, gaps in our knowledge about what they're doing and how they're doing and who they're using to help out. Sometimes we have contracted individuals contracting with other individuals to you know, to get that done. And so there's two or three degrees of separation there. And, and we just lose complete knowledge and, and control over what's going on there. And, and we're, in my opinion, we're failing to recognize the, the, the risk that creates, right? The hazards that that, that creates. And, um, you know, we have to recognize that the, the lack of knowledge, not knowing that that's a hazard, right? I mean, if we don't know what they're doing or, or who they're bringing in our farms, um, that that's a hazard, right? And, and, and so, I, I see that happening um, more and more here uh, very recently. And, you know, so I think one of the things we've tried to focus on uh, here recently is to create kind of a language around that so we can communicate that better. Uh, and and we we bottle that or package that in, in what, you know, what we're doing for outbreak investigations. Uh, but it really applies more to how we approach biosecurity and, and how we communicate it. And, and so we've been, I've been working really hard on that. I'd say in my, you know, some students that I work with in the last, um, you know, 10 years or so, uh, and, and really trying to focus on that. And I think we're, we're getting, uh, very close to that. We, we had a group here recently. We put together a working group that, um, kind of came together and developed a consensus on, on a, on a, what we're hoping will be a industry standard, um, outbreak investigation, both, you know, terminology methodology for doing that and then some some forms that um, that we use to facilitate those and so we'll be getting those out over the next year here we've got working on a, a web-based application as well to to do those and so um, hopefully be hearing more about that over the next year awesome so you've published a lot of studies so to kind of get into the nitty-gritty here you focused on a lot of studies that looked at chemical disinfectants and other ways to decontaminate livestock trailers what got you interested in that component of it? Yeah, I think my interest in, in sort of specific biosecurity control measures like chemical disinfectants or time and temperature, those kinds of things. Uh, I would say that really probably started right after PED virus. Um, mm, and okay. A lot, of, a lot of research money floating around after that to fund those types <laughs> of projects, of course. And, uh, and, and it, you know, it was a, it's sort of an urgent need at that time. And so we started doing some of that, that research and, 
you know, early on, I, I was sort of looking around. I recognized that, you know, it, it, this is still a situation today, but it was more so then that uh, we didn't have enough livestock uh, trailers or enough uh, trailer washes uh, to, to get trailers washed between every load, especially market hog loads. Um, very few of those at that time, uh, or relatively few, were being washed between every load. Mm. And so, um, you know, some work work done by um, uh, by a bunch of veterinarians, uh, kind of led by Jim Lowe and, uh, and others there, uh, showed per- pretty clearly that, you know, that not only was there PED virus at, at, at these packing plants, but it was also contaminating the trailers as they were leaving. And so, uh, kind of, you know, sort of saw that as as one of the more significant hazards that that we had uh, or that we faced during that time, and so we started looking at um, you know approaches to um, that might at least reduce the risk in some to some degree, uh, even if we couldn't get that trailer uh, washed, uh, disinfected, and dried uh, between each load, and so started looking around at some chemical disinfectants that. Had, had specific properties, one that maybe uh, could, could um, uh, hold up or be relatively efficacious in the face of organic matter. So that's a, that's a big issue for a lot of chemical disinfectants. They get inactivated by that. Uh, and then the other issue with organic matter is that, you know, viruses and bacteria can hide in that, right? And so you have, for a chemical disinfectant to work, you have to have contact with the, with the pathogen. And, and so we were looking for, you know, sort of chemical uh, disinfectants with, with those types of properties that could, you know, not be degraded by organic matter. And then also had maybe some cleaning properties that could break up that organic matter, any organic matter left. And so the idea there was, well, if you could at least get a good manual scrape or uh, maybe even a, um, an initial flush out or something of that nature, then could you come in uh, and, and use one, uh, you know, a chemical disinfectant of that nature uh, to to hopefully at least uh, reduce the, the the viral load that was on that trailer, and so um, looked around and, and and at that time uh, identified what was called Axels. Uh, I think the registered uh, or trade kind of name they use for that is the, mm-hmm. the accelerated hydrogen peroxide, and uh, kind of intriguing. We got some of that experiment with it. It re- you know it created a really nice foam, and it and it seemed to um, have some really good cleaning properties it's registered i guess as a cleaning agent as well as a chemical disinfectant and and so we uh, ran a study with that uh that product and then um uh that was funded by the national pork board and then uh later on then um Virox, which was the manufacturer that funded a couple more studies uh, to look at that as well and so um so that's what kind of got us interested uh in that type of work we looked at we looked at several other products during that time uh, uh, a couple uh, well at least one uh, dry disinfectant uh, and uh, Stalus and F is what we looked at, and and we in our hands we are under the conditions we tested. Let me say that it it, it didn't work. We had a, for that study we actually had a, a full fifty two foot livestock trailer um, that we uh, that we applied that to using a, a leaf blower like uh, people were doing at that time. Uh, and but yet when we uh, when we uh, recovered virus uh, back from those trailers, we we put it in pigs. We used a bioassay for that study, and and. It, and still infected pigs. And so kind of, kind of got soured a little bit on dry disinfectants. I know they're, they're being used again. There's a lot of people promoting those. Even a lot of veterinarians are, are using those. I think they may have a place, but the thing you got to recognize is that again, that, that pathogen has to come in contact with the chemical disinfectant to work. And I, I see that as one of the issues with the dry, uh, the dry powders, right? Is that um, there's nothing really, uh, you don't always get a good mixing, and so there's sometimes a lack of lack of contact there. 
And then, of course, we looked at time and temperature uh, as well. And time and temperature is a, is a is a good old standby. I mean, that it you know if you you can demonstrate that if you can get the surface of a of a trailer or a cardboard box or whatever you're looking at up to a certain temperature, so that the surface temperature is at that uh, at that temperature, and you hold it there for uh, you know a, a certain amount of time, if you can demonstrate you know, and there's studies, uh, plenty of studies since then. Uh, some I've been involved in, some some others have done. You know that sort of give us a pretty good idea of of those combinations of time and temperature we need. And so, you know, again, if you can if you can then kind of come up with those combinations of time and temperature, whether that's through baking trailers or you know a heated uh, supply entry or whatever your uh, application is there, I think if you can if you can uh, engineer it so you you're confident you're getting the right uh, temperature, you're holding it there for the right amount of time. Heat is very forgiving. It gets everywhere, right? It's not affected by shadows. It's not, um, you know, affected by non-permeable objects. It, it's, uh, you know, it pretty much deals with everything, right? And so it's one of those, one of those that I, I, I find it, you know, sometimes hard to get away from that if, if that's what people are using now, like baking trailers. But there's certainly a lot of interest in doing something else or finding an alternative to that because of the cost of energy now. And so, yeah, yeah, we're always, always searching for something better, but it's, it's pretty hard to, find a good substitute for time and temperature, you know, do some biofuel. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so one thing I've seen, so when we look at chemical disinfectants, uh, Oh, back when I was in the South farm, I got a, uh, I got synergized in my eye. Oh my goodness. That was a, that was a process, but we've seen intervention being used much more often. Just, I kind of like how it's not, you're not going to have that problem from a safety standpoint in the eye. But what have you seen from products in the market that have been successful as of late? Yeah. And and what, how does that seem? How does that landscape seem to be changing? I know you somewhat touched on it, but yeah, yeah, that's that's I see that too, Matthew. I, I think you know back when we started doing this research, I think uh, we were also at that time uh, we had a survey that uh, called PADRAP. So you, you're probably too young to remember that, maybe, but. Uh, a lot of older veterinarians would remember that program. It was just a biosecurity survey. And one of the questions, excuse me, that we asked was, um, uh, you know, what chemical disinfecting are you using for trailers? And there were some other questions related to that too. And, and it, it always amazed me. It was synergized, 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 synergized. It was that, that's all anybody used at that time. And well, because so, Tektrol would like give you rashes. So like synergized yeah, was the next yeah. best thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But but yeah, I think the the industry has diversified a little bit, and, and a lot of that has been driven by uh, by concerns about human safety, right? The the, the aldehydes in general, uh, or fluoroaldehydes, um, and even the formaldehydes are are um, uh, have, have, a, have a you know a human safety uh, factor there that that's not so good, right? So uh, a lot of the companies, especially as they've gotten bigger, and you know, of course, have brands to protect, or maybe have a little bit more oversight as they've gotten larger. Uh, you know, that, that becomes more important to them. So, um, so yeah, certainly that's, that's been a driver. Um, I, you know, I think also it's just more looking closer at, you know, the circumstances under which these things are used. Um, you know, again, that, that, um, the nice thing that one of the things that we were liked about intervention or Excel at that time was, um, you know, the foaming properties made it really easy to see where you had applied it. That was yeah. kind of audit. That yeah, it's really nice because when you're spraying it, you you actually can be confident that you didn't miss a spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, and and it, and it is very efficacious. I mean, we we looked at it at 
you know, label rates at under room temperature and freezing conditions. And then we looked at it, at, um, same thing at lower concentrations, one to 128, one to two, um, one to, uh, uh, 256, um, you know, again, at those combinations of temperature and it, you know, it seemed to work under, under all the conditions we tested it under. So yeah, it's, it's still one that, you know, that, that I, I see as having a really nice, um, set of properties. And, and I think it is, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how uh, frequently it's used now, but it, I do see it, uh, quite a bit, but, um, you know, at the end of the day too, there's, there's still people making judgments about, you know, it's always, you know, trade-offs between, how much they have to use and what it costs and, you know, and those kinds of things. And so sometimes, um, you know, this is the other, other thing that's happened with large companies is, is they've gotten bigger. Uh, you know, we create these org charts and, and then decisions sometimes get siloed off. Right. And so the, the veterinarian may not even get involved in those decisions. Sometimes it's maybe made by, uh, you know, somebody that's uh, making a decision based on cost primarily. And so um, that, that yeah. kind of, Puts a lot of pressure, unfortunately, on the veterinarian who's who's still held accountable for the health, though, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it caught my attention. I mean, well, one, it's one we've had the same two products for quite a while, and this one, this one I saw the intervention you're talking about was orange. That kind of stood out. But when I was power washing, like I wasn't even, or when I was disinfecting, it was just a bubble floating through the air of Synergize, and I it looked like a cartoon just hit my eye. To this day, 12 years later, I have to put an eye drops almost every single day because the impact of it, because it started to eat away at the top layer of the eye. And so, yeah, like the cost is a factor, but there's little things like that, that not even the safety goggles could, could stop. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah. And that's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to see one out there. Yeah. Yeah. Appropriate PPE, you know, um, personal protective equipment would is important there, but very, if you spent much time on, farms, you know, that, that, that oftentimes doesn't get used, right? It's just one of those. Very things. often. Not, not sure why <laughs> I like just to use those things, but they just, just don't tend to get used very often. Well, I don't think that, and, and we're getting, it's still on this topic of biosecurity because I think we're talking about this, the components of it here. It doesn't get talked about a lot. Like, oh, it's a chemical. Okay. But like it chemicals, we all rave and complain about chemicals, chemicals in the plastic, chemicals in our and our food, everything else, it just you kind of get desensitized to the idea of, oh, it's a chemical, you need to be careful. And you just don't see people realizing that, okay, I need to put on safety goggles. Even, even, even when the room is done and there's stuff floating in the air, like it's, if, if it gets you, it's going to get you. So yeah. uh, people just need to be careful. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and you know, again, I think com- these companies are, uh, the larger companies in particular, and all producers really, I think, are uh, more getting more focused on that, that human safety aspect. And especially, you know, as labor labor markets get tighter and tighter, um, you know, I hear a lot of producers talking about trying to trying to find ways to make the work conditions better, right, and not, not make it so um, unappealing for uh, for the people that are working on these farms. Yeah, you can tell it's been a topic of it's been a topic of conversation for quite a while now. As people are focusing on it a little bit more, and and I don't think I don't think it was that they weren't focused on the safety. I just think it wasn't known what that risk was. And, and as as we start using those things more often for biosecurity, obviously the the outcomes are going to become more prevalent uh, in both sides. So, uh, kind of spinning off of that, where do you, where do you see biosecurity in our industry going? I mean, how do you think this is going to change and evolve and what do you think needs to be done to make progress? We talked about have we made progress, but what needs to happen for us to make progress? 
Yeah, you, you know, some of the things that have have added hazards. Um, you know, again, I I, I guess uh, the way I look like to look at it is the major progress. Really, what we what we need to look at is you know the frequency of outbreaks of PERS or PD or whatever pathogen we're interested in uh, on south arms, and then lateral introduction into groups of pigs, right? And and mm-hmm. that are negative to start uh, at placement. And, you know, by that, those measures, I think arguably, you know, we have not made progress, right? If you, you look at the swine health monitoring project data coming out of Minnesota, Cesar Corzo there, uh, you know, the incidence of, of annual cumulative incidence of PERS outbreaks on South Arms, you know, is just, it's persistently above 20%, somewhere between 20 and 40% every year. Um, you know, I've, I've plotted that, look at just the, the end cumulative incidence uh, since 2000. Nine when Bob Morrison started collecting that data, and you know, there's been two times where we saw kind of dips where it where it looked like things were getting better, and then it kind of came back up again. And those two times were after PED. So when PED got into the U.S., everybody cranked up biosecurity for PED, and it had a spillover effect for PERS. And and so we had actually a few years of really low incidence of PERS outbreaks in South Farms. Same thing happened again. It started creeping back up. But then in 2018, when African swine fever virus got into China, that kind of set off alarm bells uh, in the U.S. and everywhere in the world, I I imagine. And um, and, and and again, it went back down again. And so we're still kind of in the valley of that. But it's starting, I think, to creep back up a little again, a little bit again. And and certainly, uh, you know, (laughs) we've got issues now with the lineage 1C variants and some of these more virulent viruses. And so it some pretty significant production losses last year, again, arguably. So, yeah. so you know, by those major, and then, and then, you know, look at growing pigs, uh, it's even worse there. I think, um, you know, if you if you got a, a group of, of pigs placed uh, most places in Iowa, uh, and, and you can keep them negative for PERS virus and PED virus until until they're marketed, uh, well, you ought to go out and buy a lottery ticket because it's it's about that, you know, it's it, there's about no chance you're going to get get those pigs to market here. We uh, Kate Dion is a grad student. She's also a veterinarian that works for Hanor. I uh, did a project where she and um, picked 72 groups of, of growing pigs that were all negative for PERS, PD, and all the health, all the coronaviruses. And uh, for PERS, there was only two of those uh, 72 groups that stayed negative all the way to market. So holy cow! So it's it's pretty hard. You know, we're we're just not keeping it out. And so again, you know, when you ask, are we making progress? No, we're probably going backwards in that regard. And so. Again, it's not, it's not that we're not doing things. Uh, you know, we are adding biosecurity control measures. Um, you know, and you could argue, well, okay, but what we're doing is not working, right? And, and, you know, you may even argue that those don't work, right? And I, I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the, the issue is, as I mentioned earlier, we, we just keep adding more hazards on the other side of the equation. And for every control measure we put in place, we add about five new hazards, right? And so, so to answer your question where we're going, you know, I think we've got to we've got to take a closer look at then what is the origin of those hazards, right? And uh, oftentimes the origin is things we do um, that are are more cost effective, more uh, efficient, right? So we have uh, you know bigger, larger companies especially can take advantage of economies of scale, right? So instead of having a dedicated uh, livestock trailer to haul wean pigs for one for every farm. We have a fleet of those and we keep them on the road and they're hauling for multiple farms, right? Well, that, of course, that means now they've got multiple contacts and the chance of getting contaminated goes way up, right? So that's adding, adding hazard. Are we going to stop doing it? No, probably not, right? That's one of our competitive advantages, I think, that we have 
uh, in the U.S. Um, uh, relative to the rest of the world, uh, you know, and so that's not going to go away. Uh, the reliance on on third party contracted labor, you know, I don't see the labor market changing anytime soon there. And so, um, you know, and they're doing that. That's not always strictly for cost. Sometimes they uh, do that to uh, make it easier, right, and avoid some maybe some liability involved in in dealing with um, uh, you know with uh, uh, visa labor, right. And and so um, those things aren't going to go away. But but I think we what we what we really got to do is we got to start recognizing again those and and recognizing where the you know we're creating a a lot of significant hazards and then prioritize those and figure out okay how are we going to do that better right how are we going to manage those uh, another areas rendered we we just got um, this past uh, winter we had a lot of. APP cases, there was a, a, an outbreak of APP serotype 15 in Northern Iowa here. And there were about 20 cases came into the Iowa State uh, Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, all within a very tight area. You could draw a 20-mile 20, 20 radius circle around them, and they were all right there. And um, as far as we knew, that was, that was the only activity that was going on uh, during that time. None of the other labs were seeing that. It was all concentrated in that one little area. And as we did some investigations in that, it, you know, it became apparent that one of the big issues there was rendering, right? And mm-hmm. we think that, you know, APP 50, serotype 15, APP in general is not generally not that easy to move around. It, it doesn't survive well outside the ho- outside the pig. Um, but in this case, it, you know, it was pretty clearly we, we think was being moved around, uh, you know, through lateral transmission and, and rendering seemed to be one of the, one of the ways it was doing that in, in most of the, most of the sites we investigated were, were using render. There was a couple, uh, were composting, but in the grill finish phase yet, we still rely pretty heavily on rendering because of the, again, the cost, the investment in, you know, in composting facilities and the time, right? Uh, yeah. The, the employees that, that take care of these, uh, wean to finish sites, uh, uh, sometimes have very little time at each site. And so they're moving fast. And, and if they have to stop and manage a compost pile, it's probably not going to get done. So. So, you know, the, the companies or the veterinarians who work with these companies tell me, no, we're, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to move away from composting. So, or move away from rendering. Uh, and so, so how we do, how do we do that better? Right. How do yeah. we eliminate or reduce some of those hazards that are involved with that? Um, and, and then I think there's ways to do that, but I think we've, we've got to, again, um, sort of adopt a, a language and adopt an approach to be able to look at that, uh, more clearly and then start to prioritize, uh, you know, where we need to focus our, our resources and, and make those investments. And one area I see that, you know, I, you know, it's this idea that not all control measures are equal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this, I, I guess I adopted this or adopted it from, uh, lab, lab safety training. I, and, and most people that, that have been involved in research in a, a company or a university, some sort of probably taking a lab safety uh, course or training training course, and one of the things they talk about is this uh, this this hierarchy of, of control measures. And so the, the at the top is elimination. So if you can eliminate the hazard altogether, that's that's the best, right? Uh, and at the bottom is uh, control measures that involve people, right? So they call them administrative controls, uh, and it's anything that involves people doing something right. Uh, the, the middle is what they call engineer controls, and those are essentially you know things that that you have to do or that take the people out of it uh, to get them done. And so, you know, I, I used to routinely talk about that, and then and then also follow up and say that you know in the pig industry, uh, almost everything well not everything we do uh, involves people for biosecurity specifically involves yeah. 
doing something right. Uh, you know, not only not only following an SOP, but but also doing it well, right? So uh, not only compliance, but quality of compliance, both of those matter. And I used to say that uh, as if it was just a fact, and, and it is a fact, but, you know, sort of take it for granted. And then uh, I happened to run into a gentleman one time that, that was um, uh, used to, he was actually trained as an engineer at, uh, from Iowa State and uh, worked for an ethanol production company for a while. And then uh, through a family connection or uh, it was a family operation, ended up back and, and was managing some sow farm or some uh, uh, swine farms, uh, wean to finish barns. And, you know, I asked, I, I said to him, I said, well, you, you know, you must be very familiar with biosecurity working in the ethanol industry because it's, a, you know, also a biological production industry. And he said, yeah, that's, that's true. But he says, but really what's really struck me about the pig industry is how much people are asked to do for biosecurity. He yeah. said, all industry, you know, they, but he, he didn't say it this way exactly, but what he was describing is a more engineered system, right? And it was very close production process, but that was all engineers. So pe- people didn't have to, to do much to, to make that work. Um, in the pig industry, we have not done that. And for obvious reasons that, you know, those engineered yeah. type control measures tend to cost money and require capital investments. And, and you know, we tend to focus more on the, the things that um, that are cheaper and don't require those capital investments and not, not wrongly, right? That's still a good thing to do. But I think in the future, I think we need to look probably start to look more closely at some of those engineer controls. And in many cases, it's, it's more, it's not a, we have to go, you know, a hundred percent from, uh, you know, involving people to, to, you know, complete automation where we're not, don't have people in at all. That's not how it's going to happen. It'll be yeah, more hybrid where, you know, we give, we start by just giving the people the tools to do their job better. Right. And so, you know, a good example that was used at the layman conference here a month ago was, you know, in sow farms, we've got uh, most sow farms now have um, powered or automated uh, dead carts, right? And and so, um, you know, you we can tell employees, okay, here's the single point of exit for the dead pigs uh, that you need to use. And if they got a sow that's there on the other end, well, they got an easy way to get it to that to that door. In wean to market, we don't do that. Everything is still done by manual carts. Um, sometimes they don't even, don't even have a cart, and seen occasional occasional farms like that. And, you know, if you, you know, they're going to, they're going to get that pig out the closest door. Right. And that's typically yeah. where, whereas if we give them a little bit better tools to do their job, uh, you know, a, a, a drop off is another example. You know, I, I've seen so many cases where they, they say, here's the door that we take dead sows out of. Uh, and it's, you know, you know, that they describe the threshold as being, being the clean, dirty line there where the employee inside getting the sows out is not supposed to step over that. Uh, but yet it's, it's level with the ground, right? And, and so you can, you can imagine, you can just visualize this employee trying to get two or three dead sows out if they happen to have more than one a day. How does he do that without stepping over that line? You know, he'd have to yeah. back the sows up and roll them over. I don't, you know, it's not going to get done, right? It and can so, be hard. It's going to have error and yeah. maybe not most of the time, but there will be error. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, just ideas like that, I think where, you know, those, you know, sometimes wouldn't even involve a, a big capital investment, but, um, but I think that's that'll be the sort of the, the progression. It won't be uh, sort of overnight. We're going to go. Everything will be automated, and um, and we'll we'll be all good. But but I think more slowly we'll we'll either give the people the tools to do the job, uh, you know, the job better, uh, or you know, slowly take them out of it uh, by automating you know certain tasks within within their their day to day job. So I appreciate you coming on to talk about this. It's exciting to think about 
where things could go, but also daunting because there are so many things we can and can't control. And there's just a lot of challenges as, that we face as an industry. Before we wrap things up, could you share a bit of wisdom, uh, life knowledge, a golden nugget for the listeners? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, in addition to biosecurity, uh, one of my other focuses at, at the College of, of Veterinary Medicine, you know, is working with, with veterinary students. And so we, we work primarily with, with uh, veterinary students and graduate students out there and, and occasionally undergrads, uh, graduates as well. But, uh, but my main focus has really been on, on veterinary students. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of research out there, a fair amount of research that, uh, that shows pretty clearly that, that, um, uh, you know, one of the things that students, uh, value and, and then leads to, let's say, sometimes described as better engagement as they get out into their careers and maybe, you know, maybe even better jobs or higher paying jobs. Uh, there was, there's two things that always stands out. One, one of those is relationships with, with, uh, with a faculty member. So if a student, you know, going through had a, had a sort of a closer relationship with a faculty member, that seemed to make a big difference. And then the other was uh, internship opportunity, right? So actually getting out in the field, uh, you know, spending, spending time with uh, in, in, sort of in the environment that, uh, that they're going to, you know, spend their career in. And, and so uh, back in 2006, um, uh, Dale Polson uh, and I kind of got together and uh, created the, the origins for what we now describe as a veterinary internship program. We, we started out strictly in swine, um, but every every year, then we we re, uh, get veterinary students. Uh, we have um, uh, companies, um, biopharmaceutical mm-hmm. companies, and others uh, that sponsor those students. So they you know they put up money for the for the their stipends, some travel expenses, and and other costs. And so you know that's a big important part of, of of making that work. And then the students spend the summer then with what we describe as a host mentor. And so those tend to be uh, veterinarians working in. Um, uh, you know, either a veterinary practice or a, a production system. Uh, and, and so that, that has been, I, I think probably the one thing, Matthew, if, if you ask me what gets you up every day, uh, that's it for me now. Right. And that's and cool. So I, I, I really, um, you know, find a lot of value or see that is a very important thing to do is to get those students an opportunity to do that. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it brings to bear a, a a lot of mentoring resources, both from the sponsors and, and the hosts that, that spend the, the summer with the students uh, that, you know, we just can't provide at the university level. We, we cannot, yeah. we don't have enough resources to do that and the faculty enough facilities, enough time to do that or money, you know? Um, and, and so it's, to me, that's an important, important step. And, you know, there's value in that for, for all the parties involved. And, and, but I think that, you know, more than any, but the students, so it's, that's, they're the ones that really uh, get the value or benefit from that most. And, uh, so yeah, that's, I, I think, uh, I guess my, the, my, the nugget would be, you know, if, if you're in a position to mentor, you know, future, um, or mentor students, current students, future, uh, what might be employees or friends or, you know, even customers in some case, yeah. is, I, you know, I just, I, I can't imagine why that would, you know, not be something you'd want to prioritize and, and do that. But, and I, and I find that that's, that seems to be the case. I don't know any swine veterinarian that that wouldn't say that that was true and we've now expanded that program to, to bovine and, and and last year we actually had two uh two students go through their um uh, our poultry uh, internship as well oh cool well that's awesome and thank you again for joining us on the popular pig podcast it's been a real pleasure and uh we wish you the very best thanks matthew again good to be here 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.